to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. And let me mention, um, speaking of Wednesday night, uh, Ben Prohl will be teaching the next two Wednesday nights, so um, you'll want to make sure you, you encourage him. And let me just uh, share how you can do that. One, pray for him as he prepares for that. And and your presence, uh, that would be a great encouragement to him as well. Uh, Greg will be preaching next uh, next two weeks and uh, as we do some traveling. And so, uh, again, I pray as they make preparation for that. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter number 4. Uh, as I've already done that, so if you're there, that's good. We're already hit the ground running, haven't we? Uh, This has been a brief letter uh, that we've looked at over the past 12 weeks um, together. Um, It takes about 11 minutes and 30 seconds to read through in one sitting. Uh, So if you time it and you're a rather slow reader, kind of like me, it's about 11 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, For us in our modern day um, ADD culture with uh, no attention span, it probably is about two lifetimes. Uh, to read through it, uh, but it is a as we've as we've studied this together, it has been a a great encouragement and reminder of many of the the blessed truths that the Lord gives us um, and gives to His church. Paul uh, takes us from one mountain top of uh, truth and blessing to the next mountain top, from chapter to chapter, as we have seen it uh, throughout our time together. I'm reminded, even at the beginning of this, of uh, one commentator's remark, and he said uh, that this book is a book of the most excellent things. And truly, that's what we have found over and over as Paul's uh, desire to live as Christ, the gain that he finds, and then we just keep going through the book and we find blessing after blessing. At the close of the letter in chapter number 4, Beginning in verse number 10, it, it, is a, uh, it is bringing us back to the subject which he's already discussed, and that is their partnership, or the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Uh, this, of course, is about their generous gift that they gave to Paul, who was in need in Rome, and so he is addressing that. Some suggest it is a receipt, uh, as if saying, I've received it in full, and here's your receipt that I, I got it, and maybe that is what it is. Um, it is when we look at it, at the end of this, it is a reminder that there is joy in the Lord. That's what this book is about. Uh, it's about rejoicing in the joy which we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, and that joy is expressed in many ways. And one of those is uh, through helping others in need. With that, I want to begin reading in verse number 10, and we'll read... Uh, to the end of the chapter, and we'll look at this, uh, just sort of walk through this together this morning. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatsoever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and in every In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, which 
or when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and, a ple- and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. <clears throat> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Uh, pray with me one more time. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Just pray that you would use it as an encouragement to us and challenge in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we have seen in 2 Corinthians 8, and you can turn there. We'll look at that passage here in just a minute. But we have seen in 2 Corinthians 8 that Paul uses uh, the Philippian church as an example of generosity. He uses them as as a means to stir on this this graciousness and this uh, generosity, this gift that they're raising for the saints in need in uh, in the church. And so he he stirs them on. Um, they have shown themselves to be with Paul continually in partnership uh, in work in the ministry. We've seen that already here in verse 15 and 16. Of Philippians, he says, you have, this is something common to you, you have continually over and over took part in partnership with me in giving and receiving. In fact, not only had they taken part in helping him and aiding the ministry of the gospel, they were at the beginning the only ones who sent money or resources to Paul to meet his needs as he was preaching the gospel and planting churches and working and making tents and all the other stuff that he did. So Paul sets down this, this idea of this long, enduring relationship that Paul had with the church at Philippi, continually as they met his needs. But, but their foundation or the foundation of their generosity, their gift, is seen earlier on in, in a more substantial way. Uh, and I want you to turn, sorry I had you turn to 2 Corinthians 8, but turn back to Philippians 1 with me. And I just want us to see, before we look at their giving or how they help meet his needs, I want us to see the foundation of that partnership that he uses. He uses the word partnership and sharing in his, his affliction or sharing in his trouble in verse number 14. And so we see that at the chapter number 1, that the foundation of their partnership is, is that sharing or that fellowship that they have in God's grace. The fellowship that they have in God's grace is probably best seen in verse number 2 of the chapter. Paul, Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ and the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a good reason to come back to the, the foundation of what we do as we work together, as we strive together, whether it's 
whether it's in mission support or whether it's corporately working together. And that foundation is found in that experience of God's grace and peace. Paul uh, shows us that in that possessive statement here when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just his Father, not just the one who has saved him and been kind to him, his Master and Lord, the one with whom he serves, but he is emphasizing that this is our Father. That you Gentiles that's been saved by the grace of God share that same, that same relationship. We are together in this. And what we're together in is first and fundamentally in Christ. In the grace and peace received by Him. That's what he says. He fleshes that out more as he walks down through these first few verses. We share in this same Father grace and peace that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Notice he goes on and says in verse number 5, not only do we share this, our Father, but he says that we, we are partakers or partnerships in the gospel from the first day until now. They're together, definitely in different locations geographically, but fundamentally the foundation of the relationship is seen in the gospel in Jesus Christ. They share in this. The word means um, fellowship or, or sharing. We have here in the ESV their partnership. They share in the same blessed promises in the gospel. Not only is it the same blessings as we might say that the promises of hope, faith, forgiveness, eternal life, and all the other things that God promises in the gospel, uh, he again reiterates this as he works through here, verse number 6, they share in the same work of God inward. Notice he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he's just re-emphasizing that we share not only in the grace and peace given to us in the partnership of the gospel, we share in the same work of God in us. And that's fleshed out sometimes differently depending on who we are. But nevertheless, fundamentally, our partnership rests on God's work in us. God's work in us. His saving, redeeming, sanctifying work. Again, he says in verse number 7, they share in this or partakers of this grace with me or with me of grace. Now we could go through all of the book and, uh, and see ways in which the apostle and these Christians are united in Christ Jesus. They're united in suffering at the end of chapter number 1, verses 26 through 30. They're engaged in the same conflict that they saw in Paul. Chapter number 2, he begins in verse number 1. They share in this same hope, this comfort, that encouragement that is found in Christ. They are to share in the same care one for another. Have the same mind of Christ. We see in chapter number 3, they're to share in that same relentless pursuit of knowing God. All of that to say and bring us back to the core unifying part of that partnership between this church and this man is the grace of God. Was the grace of God. It's the same thing that is true for us today. What unites us together, what what makes any activity possible and God glorifying is that same common uh, foundation that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
the grace we receive from Him, the joy that He offers to us, that's our common bond. Not, not first what we do, but first what Christ has done. It is an understanding that we're partakers of the same Christ, the same grace, the same goodness of God as the believers here in the first century. And so we might read these and and see ourselves in there and take these promises as our own. Because they're ours in Christ Jesus, aren't they? Isn't it amazing, 2,000 years later, we can claim the same promises and the same belonging as this early church. That's pretty cool. But it's just as amazing to think that this is true, not just of us in this general location, but this is us globally. The believers in Africa and the believers in Taiwan and Hungary and Romania and China and all the other places in the world share in this same fundamental unifying work of God. Our partnership, our work for the furtherance of the kingdom of God is founded on Christ and Him crucified. It is when we begin moving from this position or moving from this reality that we work together, uh, we work together prosperously. But it's also true when we forget that. We build things around other things other than the gospel that we tend to err. We tend to miss the mark. That is why Paul says in the book of Ephesians, as he tells them to pursue unity and pursue harmony with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, why in the world would you ever want to do that? Well, because he brings them back to the foundation why they are to do that. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now this passage in Ephesians is given to us right after he tells the church that the Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs of the grace of God. And how can they exist together? How do they work together? How do they serve or partner together for the furtherance of the gospel? Well, they do it from the gospel, from those realities that we are brought together in Christ. And as we look to Christ and we trust Him, we follow His ways, then, uh, then we are strengthened in the work that He has given us to do. So Paul, he ends the letter with this practical way this is played out. Uh, in the relationship between him and the Philippians, but it begins with that foundation relationship of who they are in Christ. And so, believer, I would say this morning, uh, if you're a Christian, you are partakers of the same grace of God as the person beside you or on the other side of the room. We need those truths brought back to our minds, don't we, to, to steer our, our, bring us back on track. And so the partnership is a partner, foundationally a partnership in the grace of God. Secondly, notice back in Philippians chapter number 4. I don't know where you're at now. I lost track. But Philippians 4, we see this practically playing out through their partnership in giving. The practical outworking of the gospel uh, and its power in the Philippians' life is their generosity, their willingness, and their continual willingness to give to the ministry 
uh, of Paul and to further the gospel, as it were. Now, I want us to look at a few ways that we can be challenged by their example. Notice again here in chapter number 4, verse number 15. Well, let's go back to verse number 10. As we consider the practically how it's played out, I want us to see first their concern, or the reviving of their concern. Verse number 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And what is worth noting here is that Paul <clears throat> noted or Paul understood and explains to us, the readers, that, that their gift, their generosity towards him came, it, it was motivated by their concern, by their care, by their, their, their worry maybe in some sense or their, their diligence to help aid the Apostle Paul. And the reason I say that, because it brings us back to see some of the attitude and the heart of the Philippians. Now, he says that you, your concern has revived. We looked at revived last week, and that word just simply means something in, in the realm of gardening or planting. And it's the idea of a dormant plant, and then, and then the springtime, it, it comes to life, it blooms again. And, and so their, their care for him has been dormant for whatever reason. It was dormant, and it, now it has come to life. But notice he says, it wasn't because of lack of concern. You have continually cared for me. You have continually loved me and had a concern for what was going on in my life. They were seeking in ways in which they could help the Apostle Paul. We see this typical of the Philippians back in 2 Corinthians. You can turn there now. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. Paul describes them. This chapter is dealing with giving aid to the Jerusalem Christians in Jerusalem, a famine going on, and so there was a there was a an offering that was being taken up and collected to be taken back to Jerusalem to relieve the saints there and to help them. And so, evidently, the Corinthians had already said, "Yeah, we want in on that." They hadn't come through with that yet, and and. And here he's using the Philippians as a, a model of how to give. And I will say this, God has preserved the Philippians as a model for showing us a way in which we too can honor him and give. And he does so by way of contrast. Notice verse 2 and 3 with me. You heard it as Ed read it this morning. We'll begin in verse number 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For it is in severe test of affliction their abundant joy. Their extreme poverty has overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, and I can testify, and beyond their means, their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what they gave. That's between them and the Lord. The Lord doesn't preserve that for us. Um, it may have paled in comparison to what the Corinthian church could have given because they seemed to be more of a wealthy area and a wealthy church. 
But he uses this contrast, and, and it's kind of perplexing, doesn't it? He says, here they are in a, in a severe test of affliction. There's persecution going on, yet in the middle of that, there's an abundance of joy. There's a, a sense where they're in extreme poverty, but they have an overflowing wealth of generosity. You see the contrast there that Paul is trying to show us what God has done and worked in the lives of these people. There's, there's the idea that they gave according to their means, and then Paul says, and yet they gave more than their means, showing us this overflowing work of God's grace in their lives. Though they had the affliction and though they were extreme poverty, they gave generously and they gave with abundance of joy. He goes further to say in verse number 3, For they gave according to the means, and I can testify beyond the means of, what does he say at the latter part? Of their own accord. Their giving, their their generosity, their uh, their their desire and their efforts to seek to alleviate and meet the needs of those Christians in in Jerusalem was done so by their own free will. They wanted to uh, willingly, and not just willingly, but willingly in a way where the Apostle Paul says, "Nowhere near like we thought it would go. Nowhere near like we thought it would go." Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Now there is an order, I think, pointed out here for us as we see verse number 5. It is they gave themselves over to the Lord and then they gave themselves to the ministry or the gift or the, uh, the partnership which they, we see as an offering whatever there. You know, there's something to say when we've come to a place where we realize that we are God's. Not only are we His, but all that we have are, is His. It's kind of what you see here. They, they put themselves up as an offering to God. They committed themselves to God first. So, so giving beyond that was no, uh, no challenging task or it wasn't a hard task. You see, they gave of themselves Reminding us that their giving was thankfully, cheerfully. He mentions later on in verse number, chapter number 9. And he says it wasn't reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a what? But they're poor. Extreme poverty. Going through suffering. And yet God's grace poured out in their life enabled them to partake in the ministry and the work of the gospel. Not just in the gift to Jerusalem. Paul says, this has been known to them over and over in my own life. He went to Thessalonica for three weeks. Short missionary trip. Planted a church. Wrote two letters to them. We have in our Bible. And while he was there, it was the Philippians who sent to him and met his needs over and over. It was their generosity, the grace of God poured out in him. This was the heart, uh, this was the heart of one who has come to appreciate, one who has come to understand the depth of the gospel. That's what Paul does. Behind it all was the motivation of what Christ has done for him. Notice verse number 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Isn't that a beautiful verse? It's even, it's even a greater and deeper truth, isn't it? He became poor, had no house, rejected by his own. Walked through this life with just his clothes that he owned, and he that was taken from him and pawned off or gambled over, and yet he did all of that so that we might be rich uh, in him. And so we see something of the heart behind their generosity, the motivation behind their giving. The same thing would be true in Philippians. You can turn back to Philippians. Chapter number four. Paul notes that this was nothing new for them. They were known for this, a generous spirit and a generous heart. But I want you to notice, too, the practicality of their gift. As we had noted, they made a habit of uh, ministering to Paul, verse number 15, they alone. And not only uh, had they ministered to him over and over in Macedonia, they're again sending to his needs. And, and what they're doing is they're, they're, they're coming alongside of and, and is as if they're picking up just part of the weight of which he has on his shoulder. Not alleviating the burden which Paul carries or the care the concern or all the things that's going on what they're doing is they're coming alongside of and they're sharing in at least getting a corner of that burden that he's sharing in the way they're partnering with him he says here in verse number 14 yet it was kind of you and that word probably should be understood as it was good for you or you did well in doing this kind is a sort of a, a toned down Word, it was kind of you to share in my trouble, to have fellowship in the trouble or the suffering or the things that I'm going on. This was a good thing. And how did they do that? How did they partner with Paul? Verse number 18 tells us, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. How did they partner with him? Well, you see two ways in the passage here. One, you see in this gift, a collection of some sort of a gift that was uh, brought together to give to alleviate Paul and maybe pay for his housing or pay for food or whatever other costs that he had. He was living in Rome. He was in prison, and, and so he had to pay his own way while he was there. And so this was kind of part of what they were doing. The gift, there was a monetary gift given to him. But the second thing we see in verse number 18 is uh, Epaphroditus gave his own life in the service of delivering the gift. Almost, almost lost his life in that service. We read back earlier on in chapter number 2, he almost died as he took the gift to him. So here in both ways, uh, it shows the sacrificial heart of the Philippian church. They're giving to the ministry of Paul, one in his actions, the other in, in their substance. And that's kind of how we give practically, isn't it? Uh, there are many ways we help the ministry. 
whether it's this local ministry or ministries around the world, we give of our time and energy, mission trips, and, and we go volunteer and we take care of things like that, don't we? We watch children, provide meals in a timely season, we do all sorts of things as we give of our energy and talents to help meet needs in the congregation and throughout the world. Others give monetarily, and maybe many actually do both, giving resources so the, the work of God can carry on or the needs of others may be met so the gospel can go forward or others can be encouraged and helped in the Lord. And the joy of that is I've seen both of those things in our congregation over and over again. The generosity of God's people, both of their time and resources to, to encourage and meet needs and to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. And I know there's more that could be said about that, but just to give us kind of a, a perspective of this, every month it takes $5,700, $5,700 alone. That's just That doesn't count the projects or helping a missionary's need or any of those things like that. Just, just the support that we obligated ourselves to. It takes $5,700 a month to meet those commitments to the missionaries we support around the world. $5,700. Again, not taking into account the other projects and travel and other things that we do for missionaries often. Not to mention a ministry center and all the costs with that and all the other things that this church does. Uh, that's what we've done. We've decided, we've come along f understanding that this is the will of God for us as a church to partner with many people all around the world to further the gospel. And, and in that partnership, we are simply seeking to meet their needs where they are by the grace of God. And I say that not to boast or brag or not to even invite you to put anything in the box that's between you and the Lord. I say that so you can just understand that that partnership is only possible because of the local partnership that we have with one another in the Lord here. By our giving here and our care and our meeting needs and the things that we invest in this church. Now, why do we invest so much time and effort? Well, let me just say along the lines of their practical working out of the gift, the motivation behind it, there is the reward of it. Well, it was a benefit to Paul. Paul may needed a loaf of bread and some peanut butter, and he received the gift, said, I've got it, I'm full, I've got my peanut butter and bread. They probably didn't have that, but you know what I mean. In giving and meeting needs, it was a practical uh, way... Uh, and the reward was the person in need, his need was met. And so it was a benefit, it was a reward to others. And not only a benefit to others in the sense of needs being met and, and relief being given, it's also a benefit to others because this is one of the ways, one of the primary ways that we in America partnership with the global call of God to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. How will we obey the great commandment or the great commission if we're not engaged some way in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth? Well, we're not all going to get on a plane and go to Hungary and help Hosu with bricks and stone and, and preach the gospel there. 
There's other ways we can do that. In our giving, in our serving, in our partnership, we it is rewarding because it helps spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, but it is also rewarding for them. Notice with me, verse number 17, he's saying, I'm not saying all this because I seek a gift from you, so don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I hope your love abounds more and more in chapter number 1 so I can receive more and more. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not saying this because of that. His pastoral heart is coming out. And you know what he's rejoicing in? I think that's the best way to understand verse number 7. I'm rejoicing because I see God's grace at work in you. I see the grace of God and the goodness of God and the gospel and the transformation in your life taking root. And, and, and I'm rejoicing in that. I'm not seeing it because I'm uh, the one, but I'm rejoicing because I seek fruit that increases to your account. My concern is you and your joy and your fullness and your reward. Maybe you recall Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six eighteen and 20. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Does those things happen today? Does that happen? Rust especially, amen? Some of you are not here and, and don't uh, share in that. Uh, you don't have that fellowship in that because you're <laughs> not here in the snow. <laughs> But he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. He's not telling us not to invest, is he? He says, I want you to make a different kind of investment. But there's something to note in Jesus' words. It is a lesser investment. He doesn't tell us, I want you to give yourself to something lesser or something uh, uh, insignificant. Just kind of be like the, the minimalist or, or the other people who let's just go off and hermit and, and, and not enjoy anything in life. He's saying, I want you to invest, but store up your treasures in heaven. Because what you store there will not rust. People don't break in and steal it. I know we don't lock houses up here or cars and Leave your keys in there for someone to steal, but they won't get far because of the rust. We know. <laughs> We're leaving at a place where no one's going to come through and steal it and, and break in. And he's saying, invest in eternity. And you think how often we are tempted to spend and to live our lives so fixed on the now and the immediate and our own selves that we... Uh, we we battle with that, being blinded to others, being blinded to what God is doing around the world. And it's almost as if we don't believe Jesus' words are true. But if they are true, how would that change your life? If he says there's a way you can live this life now with, with, the, with, the, with the joy and the resources God gives you that you can, you can store up treasures in heaven, how would that change your life? Maybe you want to Ask God and pray about that and see how that works out. We are preparing. He is preparing us an eternal home. And he's saying, add to your internal happiness there. Uh, Peter, or Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy six seventeen. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put 
their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. And I know our um, Elder Ed, Pastor Ed, has often said this is the justification for enjoying donuts. Because God has given us everything to enjoy. I think, I mean, I know he doesn't often make a habit of that. He probably stresses the context of that passage a little bit. But God has given us this life to enjoy his goodness. He has blessed us. In different ways and to different measures. But nevertheless, all of us here this morning are blessed and enjoy the goodness of God to some measure. And we give God the glory for that. Amen? You're supposed to rejoice in that. Go back to Ecclesiastes and flesh how that works out. But in the same principle, or, or in the same way, he's saying not only let it stop at our enjoyment, but also using that and living this life in a way through uh, generosity and through good deeds and willingness, lay up treasure in heaven. Invest in the joy of the life to come. Now Paul says the same principle to Second Corinthians chapter number ten when he says, "They that sow sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully." And the reason he can say that because he reminds them that it is God who is able to make all grace abound to you. And the Philippians give in this way and and really what Paul is saying here in the whole process of this it is God who will reward you it is God who will honor you it is God who will reciprocate or or who will take note of it not men he does so going back to second um going back to Philippians chapter number four if you have it up in front of you notice at the end of verse number 18 I've received from Epaphroditus, by the way, if you're looking for names for children, there's you one uh, good Bible name. The gifts you sent. What does he say at the latter part of that? It was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And isn't that the whole thing? It is God who rewards, it is God who takes notice. It is God who, who accepts and who is pleased by the way in which we love. Whether it's monetarily that way or through the physical things we do, it is God who, who, who keeps the score. And, and it's good that he puts that and he goes on in the next verse and, and, and pointing again to God's faithfulness who will supply every need. Of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It is God who takes notice of these things. It is he who, who rewards God. And can I say this? As Paul has come to understand God meeting his needs through the gift of the Philippians, so he tells the Philippians it is God who will meet your needs. And we know this to be true. He never runs out of resources, does he? You can't outgive him. 
and he never runs out of resources. He continues to meet, meet our needs through Christ Jesus. Let me just end with this in closing. There's a partnership in giving, there's a partnership in grace, and there's a partnership in worship or glory, we might say in verse number 20. To God, our, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. God accepts those gifts you give. He accepts those gifts we give, those acts of service we give as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. It is an act of worship. Noah, when he come off of the ark, and he he had an offering that he burnt offering that he give up to to God that he offered to God and. That's that same language there. It was a sweet smell to God. It it was a sweet-smelling aroma. And he said God was pleased by it. That's what he's saying. God accepted his worship, his offering. As we give and as we, we meet needs with one another, as we rejoice together, whether it's in receiving or giving or whatever it is that God has called us to do, we, we do that as an act of worship. Our whole life is lived out as an act of worship. Not just three songs or four. Today was four. And not just in prayer. But in all that we do is an act offered up to God. And he says it is a sweet smelling sacrifice that he wholly accepts. It is ultimately to God, the Father, that glory is given. We often have heard here the statement, God's work done God's way for God's glory will never lack God's provision. At the end of the day, he points them back to the glory and the faithfulness of God, doesn't he? It is for his glory. And that is our chief end to glorifying God. And you see kind of a little part of that, and I'll go down to verse number 22. You see a little part of that at the end, isn't it? Remember Paul rejoiced even in imprisonment? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Would you do that? I don't know. It's a good question to ask, I guess. But why did he rejoice? Well, he rejoiced because it was a greater platform for for the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, didn't he? Notice what he says at the end of this. Ultimately, all of it bringing us back to the glory of God. All the saints greet you. all the saints in Rome, especially those of Caesar's household. Isn't that beautiful? Through his imprisonment and in, and in a part, them sharing with him and fellowship with him in that imprisonment and meeting his needs, he brings them back to that significant joyful truth. Not only do the saints here greet you, but those of Caesar's household. I take that to mean the, the guards that are guarding him, some of the guards that are guarding him, it is all back to the glory of God and our corporate worship together. Amen? Well, it is a book that begins with joy and rejoicing and partnership, and it ends with partnership, rejoicing, and worship. And that's how our life is lived. We're saved rejoicing and and glorying in who God is, and we continue to live, and and we finish rejoicing and glorying in who God is. One day we will see him face to face, and we long for that day, don't we?
as Matt Beatty is so great to see him last Sunday, would say, maybe today. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this time we can gather together. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your generosity towards us, lavishing us with mercy and grace. Lord, thank you for the many examples and the uh, and many ways you've used this body to uh, to carry your work further in the world. Pray that you would continue to do so. Father, help us all to be encouraged and strengthened and uh, and especially not only in, in what we come to understand what you've done for us in Christ, but, Lord, in the way we respond to that, the way it's fleshed out in our lives, not just the way we speak, but also in the way we give. Lord, we know that you will be glorified in that. Lord, I pray for those here this morning, if there's any here that do not know you, God, that they may come to understand the joy that's found in Jesus Christ or peace. Lord, I pray that you would just work in their heart and, and that you would bring them to that saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, I pray that, uh, that they may even speak to someone as they leave here. Maybe tonight when they go home, Lord, what does it mean to be saved? Father, we thank you for this day with yours. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.